Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkoff, and we have a banger episode for you. Paul Goosh is actually one of the best founders in the industry. He has built three companies uh, over the past two decades, a little bit more than two decades. And these companies have not only made amazing games, but they've also been acquired four times uh, with Playdemic, his latest company, uh, being bought first by Warner Brothers and then by EA for $1.4 billion. Now, in this episode, uh, Paul talks about his fourth company, Fourth Star, and how that is going to be the culmination of all the learnings he and his co-founder have have gained over the uh, the past two and a half decades. And I think this episode was really fun. One of the most fun ones that I have recorded, uh, at least we did it on site, so that might affect it. Uh, it was extremely insightful. I feel like Paul is the type of a leader that people would crawl through broken glass to. Uh, and <laughs> in this in this episode, we talk about why on earth him and Alex Rugby, his co-founder, are building fourth star after you know such a successful career where they can essentially retire and do other stuff. Uh, we talk about what they've learned from the previous companies that they will be doing in this one, uh, what they've done in previous companies that they definitely want to avoid. We talk about the, the fourth star's four-day work week. Uh, that's going to be an interesting conversation. And also what makes Paul believe that they can succeed in the market of tomorrow. So uh, I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the podcast episode. Sound quality wasn't the best one. Don't worry, I've bought new microphones for these on-site interviews, so they will be happening as, as I'm traveling a little bit more. And um, yeah, Istanbul, Istanbul, 7th of March, so just in a couple of weeks. Hope to see you there. Hope to see you on the uh, 8th of March at the Istanbul Investor Summit uh, with founders and investors. And we also have, I think, five upcoming GDC events. You can find them all and, and, and find the ones you want to be at on the Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. So if you haven't signed up, please do. All the links will be there. You'll be able to join us in, in various events uh, around the world because we love hanging out with you. So anyways, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Goosh. Paul Goosh, co-founder of Fourth Star. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. In beautiful London town. Absolutely. In this amazing <laughs> apartment that you've hired specially just for us, yeah. which people won't be able to see. There's actually a bed in the corner, yes. <laughs> which we're not talking we're about. We're not talking about it. We don't see the bed. No, you won't see the bed yeah. if I let it. Also, <laughs> the, the green around here. It is. It's kind of, yeah. Other things can happen here yeah. other than podcasts. So we are in Brick Lane, and other things definitely happen. <laughs> yeah. I would call this a trap house yes. if we're in the US. but uh, <laughs> We're going for Peggy Sevier. Yeah. <laughs> but the podcast is moving to the next level, clearly. Indeed. So it's from the Zoom to Trap House. <laughs> so, so uh, Paul, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your background before we jump in. So you recently raised $10 million from Griffin Gaming Partners. That's a good thing. You're a startup founder, all that jazz. But I think the previous episode is even more interesting. So Fourth Star, before Fourth Star, you were the CEO and co-founder of Playdemic. That's known for Golf Clash, and Golf Clash is known uh, for 
being sold, to, well, not Golf Rush, the whole company was sold for $1.4 billion to EA. And before that, it was sold to Warner Brothers. Indeed. So double yes. exit. Double exit, yeah. And before that double exit, there were two other exits. Rockpole Games was sold to ADOS and Square Enix of 2007. Correct. And Battlemail in 2001. Correct. What are we doing? <laughs> like, for, like uh, I don't know where to start. You are a superstar founder. Well, we've certainly been doing it for a while. Yeah. Whether we're superstars or not, I guess it's for other people to judge. But um, yeah, we've been doing this for, I feel very old. Like this is my 24th year in video yeah. games. So uh, we've had a great journey. I mean, each of those businesses has been different to the prior one. So Battle Mail was very much a early play in online gaming. It was widely distributed. It was actually a play by email product. Sounds so horrible. it was really- Yeah, it sounds, sounds like work. Do you know what? It was work. It was very different. And it was, and we had, do you know we had a million players in that game? Wow. Yeah, in 2000, which was like, no one had a million players in 2000. Yeah, nobody had a million email addresses. Exactly, yeah, it was incredible. But it was a great experience. We learned so much. And actually, bizarrely, that game was self-published. So we distributed that game ourselves which we then didn't do again for like another 10 years or so until we got back to play Demic. So it was interesting sort of seeing history repeat itself yeah. there. But I guess over that journey, I'd like to think that each of those companies has been better than the one before. Yeah. You know, we've been better at understanding what makes them tick, how we want to organize them, what the culture is. We've certainly made a lot of mistakes. Of so we've kind of tried to iterate on those things each time. And Playdemic was definitely the best version of us. Um, to date. To date, yeah. And hopefully, Full Star is an even better version of us. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm, so, before I start asking in about the, uh, the, the details, like what's good, what's bad, and what you've learned, because those are super interesting, I'm curious to understand your, oh, this sounds so horrible, your why. Oh, that's disgusting. I don't want to be. Yeah, so I'm excited. No, 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 no. Let's <laughs> uh, delete that part. But I'm just going to, I want to understand this. You are very successful. You have everything you need. You have probably a great family, I would assume. You're a nice guy. Um, you got money. You got, uh, you've shipped games that millions and millions of players have been playing over two decades. Uh, you and your co-founder, Alex Rigsby, Rigby, have been setting up all those four, three, four companies for now. So I'm just trying to understand why are you doing this again? Because <laughs> like, like, it's not easy. I, I, like Playdemic, so it was founded in 2007? 2010. 2010, yeah. And it sold in 2020. 2021. Yes. yes. So that's that's not like a... It's not overnight. No. 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 <laughs> There's a lot of painful things. I remember playing Gang Nations. Nations. Thank you. Thank that. you, Miss Guest. You were one of eight people that played it. Well, I didn't say it. <laughs> I, when I was playing, I was like, why would somebody do Clash of Clans with gangs? I'm like, who thought this is a good oh, idea? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, a, it was a, that's, that's why I remember it. We'll come back to that. Was, <laughs> that was one of our mistakes. Yeah. So, so why are you doing this again with Alex? Like, you... Well, this is, I mean, else. you love MMA. This yeah. is our MMA. You know, this is, we like the punishment. I don't do MMA. I watch MMA. <laughs> it's our jiu-jitsu. Yeah. No, I think, you know, I, I think in all honesty, yeah. I genuinely love it. Yeah. You know, and I think we, we went on this journey, which has evolved over those, you know, 23, 24 years. And when we sold the business to EA, I genuinely thought this might be it. You know, we left the business and I think I took a year off. My wife might not wholly agree, but I'm pretty sure I took a year off and Alex did the same. And you know, our CTO left, our CEO left, and we sort of all exited the business. And I spent some time just thinking about what it was I wanted to do. You know, I, I love spending more time with my family, which is yeah. great. I love doing some things I hadn't done before, indulging some spare time. But ultimately, I kind of reached the conclusion that 
I'd like to think I'm still young enough mm-hmm. to really do something interesting constructively with, with business. Video games is all I know. Yeah. Uh, I'm still really excited about mobile gaming, despite the current narrative. We'll talk about that. Well, I'm sure we will. I can, I can always feel Eric Chris like slating me as we talk. But, um, but, but genuinely felt this is something we really want to do again. You know, we've learned a lot, as you say, over the years, we made lots of mistakes. We really feel like we've got that passion still in us. Love making products, we love making video games, we love the people, the industry, yeah. the possibility, and I couldn't really think of anything more exciting to do. Yeah. So maybe that's the poverty of my own imagination. No, but, I, but that's really. But that's a powerful message. You do what you love to do. We do. And there's nothing to it. And it's not the that's not the money, that's not the fame, that's not the. Well, I don't know about fame. There's no fame in this I know, business. I'm definitely not famous. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> you might be quite famous, actually. Well, I don't know, like uh, in, in like uh, with with two thousand people maybe, like and that's that's not worth it. Uh, but um, but like there's no other motivation than you're doing it because you love to do it. Yeah, it's definitely not about the money. I do know for me, and a lot of I know a lot of people say this: you've made money, it's easy to say yeah. you made money, but yeah. it never was about the money. Yeah. So my first career was investment banking. Yeah. If I was interested in money, I should I should have stayed there. Yes. And that was just I hated it. Just yeah. wasn't for me. So for me, the journey of building these companies and building these games, I, and I see those two things. Sort of in parallel, yeah. yeah. Building a company and the culture and the mission and the vision alongside building video games. I see those two things having lots of parallels. Yeah. And I love both of those bits. And that's really what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's beautiful. Are the all four companies based out of Manchester? Or where they um, yeah, they pretty much have been. We had a we had a London office for a while yeah. um, with Rockpool. We had a we had a licensing business as part of Rockpool that was called Ironstone yeah. that was based out of London. I lived in London for a long time. But fundamentally, yeah, Manchester, we've always had this pull back to Manchester. I mean, you, know, you and I both went to Manchester University. <laughs> <laughs> Once and that's <that's> enough. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, well, do you know what was funny is when we were growing Rockpool, yeah. we were trying to hire, we were trying to expand. Yeah. So Rockpool did a lot of work for hire development. Yeah. And we found it so much easier to hire the kind of talent we needed in Manchester than mm-hmm. we did in London. Yeah. And so I moved from London personally to Manchester for that reason, wow. is that we were scaling better in Manchester than we were in London. So I used to commute from London to Manchester. Yeah. And then it became a day a week, two days a week, three days a week, all week. And it was like, no, we need to move. And were you United fan before that or after? I was. For my sins, no one's going to listen now. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I have been a United fan from uh, from childhood. So, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Even living out of London? Yeah. I mean, most, as, as any cynical football fan will tell you, most United fans live in London. Yeah. Wow. All right. Interesting. All right. So let's let's jump in into the learnings because this is what I'm what I'm really interested in. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity Game Framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server, lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. Hey game devs, are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? 
Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iframes, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. It's like over these three previous companies, what were the, the kind of like the, the key learnings? I think it's very hard to speak of 24 years, Yes, but there must have been certain things where you did your first company and it's like, okay, we can do it again. We have a new idea and you do that. And then you do the third one. So there must have been left certain things that you were continuously doing. Like let's do continue to do these things. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's probably macro things uh-huh. and micro things. Yes. And so when I say macro things, I mean those big ideas yeah. that you really go hold on to. And then the micro things are probably more procedural methodologies, ways of doing things mm-hmm. that are smaller, more detailed. So in terms of the macro stuff, um, one thing, and some of these things, some of the macro sounds quite trite, but I think it's really important to recognize the reality of them. So the one thing that I would say up front is that it's all about the people. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people say that, and I think what's interesting is I've said that for most of my career. I think I only really started living that with Playdemic. So a lot of people you meet in this industry will say it's all about the people. People are great at you know, the incredible mm-hmm. talent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely evidently true. I'm not convinced that's always lived. And certainly, when I was running the Rockpool business, we were just trying to hire people. You know, we had a lot of work on, we worked five businesses, we were trying to hire people. I mean, there was a moment in time where if you lived in Manchester and you made video games, I probably would have hired you, you know? <laughs> so, so I think there is an understanding over that journey yeah. that those things that do sound a bit trite are 100% true. It's all about super talented people and a collection of super talented people with experience and knowledge are significantly more uh, productive innovative, creative, than a less talented group of, of a larger number of people. So I think that's a really, really important point. I think secondly, and again, this is one of those sort of big ideas, but I think you know you have to live it, is a culture. You have to create an environment where those super talented people are gonna do great work. And that's really tough. You know, It's very hard to do that in a world where, I often joke that video games is an art form masquerading as a business. Yeah. So we try and sort of make video games look like a business. You know, We put deadlines on things and budgets on things and, and we try and make them to conform to traditional manufacturing processes when actually it's an art form. And I think trying to create an environment and a culture where people feel safe to take risks, where people feel empowered, where people communicate effectively, yeah. where there's transparency, trying to build a platform that great super talented people with experience can then do great things is really important. And we spend a lot of time at Playdemic, you know, it's one of my sort of big missions at Playdemic yeah. to create that, foster that environment. I mean, how, how do you do that? Like, so in my experience, I've more often failed mm-hmm. than succeeded. Like there are, there were studios where the environment was the one that I loved. Yes. I think yes. know, the retention is like, yeah. you know, it, like when people don't leave and you're yeah. having fun and, and very like-minded, um, or a type of place where it's tough for new new people even to come in because the existing ones have gelled so well. Yeah, it's a you know usually a, that's you know the the kind of negative part of like well gelled teams. I think that's right, and I think one of the things that I would say about that particular topic is yeah. is you know that you remember the famous Netflix sort of um, yeah. 
the deck that we all consumed back in 2009, there was a line from those Netflix values that really chimed with me, which was, we are a sports team, we're not a family. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I think that's really important, is that you know, there's this idea that people will talk a lot about, that companies are families. They're not families. You know, Companies are pro sports teams. Mm-hmm. So elite companies are like elite athletes. Yeah. Now you have to operate at the top of your game. You can't tolerate poor performance. That doesn't mean you don't support mm-hmm. each other. It doesn't mean you don't work together. But what it does mean is you don't just forgive. You know, yeah. you don't just kind of say, oh, well, you know, I know this guy hasn't done this yeah, thing, yeah. but he's really nice. So, you know, yeah. we get on really well. well we, we get away, time, right we get way back. Yeah. yeah. That's not how, that's not what that kind of collegiate culture is about. It's, a, it's about high performance. You know, and high performance is about supporting, feeling safe, being one unit where everyone in that unit is playing in the position they should be in. But it doesn't mean sort of you know, unconditional love. How do you combine that approach, which is, which is that the, now that you talked about it, and I was kind of like reflecting things that worked, reflecting things that didn't work. Absolutely agree. And I was thinking about things that work. And like, was it like a sports team? I was like, no, it was kind of like a locker room. Yeah. Which is like, I was under thirty then. And we had a lot of fun, and we were like, it's a natural and, thing. And we were an extremely well gelled machine. Yes. I understand. Not you know probably the easiest place for for new people to come in, but yeah. Anyways, moving to the next one. Uh, next, so not next one, moving away from that. But I wanted to ask about the sports team, not a family approach. It's a cutthroat approach in many ways because sports teams are very brutal to players and managers, especially. <laughs> well, and you know what, I think they're both. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about football, <laughs> yeah. managers getting fired. But I think there's something, you know, there's something about that kind of elite performance yeah. that requires both things simultaneously. Yes, you do have to be brutal. You do have to be brutal in your honesty about what mm-hmm. you're trying to do. You have to be brutal, and we're going to talk about how competitive our industry yeah. is. You have to be brutal in your understanding of how competitive that industry is. But also, the best teams are the ones that truly support each other. You know, what I love is when you see, you know, as you say, I'm a Man United fan. Yeah. We, 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 we signed this player called Hoyland, who's our new striker, yeah. and we spent 60 million pounds <laughs> on him. And he scored his first goal only a few weeks ago. Now he'd been with us from the start of the season and he was the big white hope. But yeah. what I loved was when he scored that goal, all the other players were around him yeah. celebrating. They were celebrating with him because they knew he needed that goal. Yeah. They knew he needed to have that win and they were really supportive of him. And I think you know there is a double-edged sword to this kind of nature of elite, elite sports teams and elite companies is they are highly supportive of each other. Yeah. But they're supportive in the pursuit of success rather than just being supportive for the sake of being supportive. And and I think that sort of that probably brings me on to another point, which is about absolute clarity in what it is you're trying to do. I think, you know, if everyone understands what they're signing up for, they understand the mission, they understand mm-hmm. the vision, they understand how competitive the market is, yeah. they understand what they're signing up for and they're gonna give it their all, that's all really asking of anybody. So it's not, you know, it's not brutal in the sense of, you know, being overly aggressive to people, yeah. like, you know, setting, you know, targets that can't be met, not providing the right tools and tech and support to deliver on something. It's about ensuring that all those things are in place, but all acknowledging how difficult it is, and we've got to be on our A game together. Yeah, that's a. So I wrote here like the, the question that I have here is around, like all of these are very easy to agree upon. Like yes. there's nothing. Yes. But then when it, when the rubber hits the road, that's the most difficult thing. Yeah. And part of it, you said psychological safety. We all know that when you have psychological safety, you're more likely to succeed and so forth. It's just like playing with a good team. If you know that they're gonna support you, they're gonna celebrate with you, you scoring is for the team, not for you. So like ever, all of that. Yeah. But when you put the, uh, the sort of a safety versus support, um, those are kind of like two different things, if you know what I mean. It's like, 
on one hand, or not or safety and performance, let's mm -hmm. put it that way. Yes. Where on the one hand, it's like, I have to be safe, I have to try me, I have to, you know, feel that I'm not endangered in my position. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, if you don't perform, you're out. Yeah. And I think, and you're right, I think one way of sort of differentiating the, between yeah. those two things is, I think, is the notion of persistent underperformance. Yeah. I think part of support is recognizing that failure will come through experimentation, yeah. innovation, and that type of failure is acceptable. If that's part of the mission, if we are aiming to deliver something exceptional and we know we're taking creative or production or technology risks, then failure is an inevitable part of that consequence. I think that kind of failure is not only forgivable, but actually part of the process. I think where to your point of where, where some over-support might be the enemy of performance, which I think is your point, yeah. is where you allow underperformance to persist. Yeah. Where a member of the team isn't performing for a long period of time yeah. and it's recognized and nothing is done about it. Yeah. I think that's something I've seen in organizations and I've definitely been guilty of this. Yeah, I've yeah. definitely been guilty of sucking those bullets and having people in an organization, which frankly everybody sort of knows that this, this individual isn't performing, but no one really wants to face up to it. No one wants to do anything about it because you know everyone's been nice to each other. And I think that's the challenge. That's where safety is is no longer safe because what you're doing is endangering the organization. Mm -hmm. You're endangering the culture. You're endangering the mission. You're endangering the success of the others around you. And that's where the right thing to do is to actually act in that situation. I remember someone saying to me that who I really respect that one poor performer in a hundred does more than one percent damage. And I love that, and I, and I think that's a really important way to think about it. Yeah, and then one top former does most. One percent yeah, contribution. One hundred percent. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That's um, and then and this is like like again, we're on a theoretical level, and I understand everything perfectly, and I think everybody agrees on on that. But having been in different organizations, I've I've been in quite a few, and I have been at these organizations that are. You know, based on Netflix. Yes. Let's, yeah. let's get, like Supercell is a good example. Yeah. Supercell of 2013, mm -hmm. 12. That's a that's a straight up Netflix organization, yeah. and it is. When when people talk about psychological safety, in theory, I understand that 100. percent And then I remember this organization that was on top of its game. You know, best of the best people, and the turnover. I know at some point it was like 50 percent. Yeah. Of, of new employees who start, and. That's not psychologically safe. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, it doesn't sound like it, but nevertheless, the organization is incredibly well performing. Yes. So, so it's kind of like almost like the gauntlet for people who get to be part of this organization as they join. I, yeah, and I think I understand that. I think you're right. I think that the supercell model is one we all hold up, and there's yeah. incredible success that came yeah. out of particularly that period. And obviously, Ilk has talked a lot yeah. about sort of yeah. the, the DNA of that. I think, from my perspective, you know. Psychological safety is one of the hardest things that yes. I've found to create because it goes against a lot of natural human instincts, you know, particularly in creative pursuits. Yeah. You know, we're all naturally, we all naturally attempt to defend our ideas. We have a natural association with things that we've thought of or things that we've created. The idea that someone else would challenge those requires a level of maturity and insight and perspective to be able to take a step back yeah. from and say, actually, Miska is is challenging this thing that I'm emotionally attached yeah. to, but I need to take a step back and understand that actually the reason he's doing that is that the pursuit of the ultimate goal is the right thing for all of us. And I think that's a really difficult thing to create in an organization. I think in terms of the turnover of, of headcount, yeah. I think part of that could be that you know 
could result in some people not being psychologically safe. I think one thing I would say, and and be interested in what Ilka would say about this, but that environment is not for everybody. Yeah. You know, and some people go into it and realize, Do you know what, I don't want to be in this environment. This doesn't suit me. Um, and I think you know those that who are left or or not left, those who continue in that organization yeah. might actually be grateful. And I've had this yeah. experience that other people are no longer in that organization. Yes. And that for them creates a level of safety. Exactly, and we're talking about so 10 years ago, so that's yeah. not of today. But I remember another uh, point that was raised. I don't know if this is from Netflix or was this from Riot actually. In their culture was that a good enough performance gets you uh, was it like a oh yeah separate separate package. Separate package. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's Netflix, yeah, but yeah. I, I remember yes. visiting Riot in those same days. Yes. And that was the CEO told us this and I remember like it resonated because there as well. I was like, that's a good one. <laughs> and like no well, it, yeah, it. And, it, and it kind of is and, and I think what it talks to is that yeah. that demand yeah. for, for excellence. You yes. know, when, when you think about our industry yeah. how inc- you know the, the, the proceeds of success yeah. are not evenly distributed. But, but it goes back to it's all about the people and kind of like what I've been, I've been mulling around this a lot because I've made all the possible mistakes here and I've kind of like going, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm kind of like thinking about successes and the failures and it feels like the team building is, is the most important part because yeah. psychological safety, making everybody happy, all those things are great, but they're not meant for everybody and you have to build the type of team that can execute and that you can lead because there are different leaders and there are different people and some people fail like in some football teams. You go from Manchester United to Real Madrid and you're dog shit. Absolutely. And the other yeah. way around as well. But nevertheless, when they played in their own teams, they were the best players. And so it goes back to building the type of team that you can lead and being brutal. Not brutal, but I don't know what's the right word. Being well, I think, brutal, I mean, the way I would put that is, and I totally agree with yeah. you, is chemistry. Yeah. There needs to be chemistry amongst the team. You know, you need to have a highly performant group of individuals that are not just capable of acting individually, but when they come together, their skill set is amplified. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes from chemistry. You know, if you think about it as a recipe, you know, garlic is amazing. Ice cream mm-hmm. is amazing. Mm-hmm. I don't want ice cream garlic, you know. Well, there might be that. <laughs> garlic ice cream might be a success. But, but you know what I'm saying? You know, the things yes. that, you know, that, that, that just don't go together. So I think that chemistry is also really important. Yeah. You, know, it's, you can't put people together that just because they're highly talented yes. you need to understand that how they're going to operate together that culture and that team fascinating so all about people create an environment sports team not a family what else what are well I think and you know I think I touched on it a bit earlier but in terms of those big macro things I think you have to be really really clear on the mission and the vision you know and the mission and vision again are these words that get thrown around and they're sort of very corporate jargonistic mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the way I see mission and vision is just a really clear statement as to what it is we're trying to do. You know, my mission mm-hmm. statement is why do I exist? Yeah. Why are we coming here? You oh, know, about Simon Sinek. Yeah, well, it is. You know, it is. It's back to Simon Sinek again. But I think ultimately, I think that's so important. And I think a lot of these, because I think we've all consumed way too many business books over the years, yes. we build up this natural cynicism towards some of these things. Uh-huh. But there's real important kernels yeah. in these things, you know, and. Um, I think from, from my perspective, having a very clear mission and vision mm-hmm. is really like having a map. If you go on an adventure, you and I want to know where we're going. We've got a very clear understanding of why we exist and what I'm going to disagree. Okay. So I was, uh, I was hoping this... Uh, it's a psychologically safe space. Yeah, it's a psychologically safe space. I cordially disagree on this one. So I'll give an example. I was helping um, a team. I don't know. Startup, 150 people. I guess that's a startup. Big startup. <laughs> Big startup. Anyway, they've been out for a while. It's an app. They've been doing you know good and they have a very strong vision. Yeah. And they were leading the team through goals. 
And so what was happening in between those two is that um, is is that you have your you have your vision, and that's clear. Everybody is, is on board, and they lacked product strategy. They didn't. Uh, so they lacked company strategy. They lacked product strategy. At that point, yes. they already had two big products, yeah. right? one big and one new, and they lacked roadmap that is based on the product strategy. And so instead, it went down to the goals like, hey. You need to hit this, you need to do that. So we need our retention up. Our monetization is a little bit lacking. Let's focus on that on the next quarter. And it created an environment where everything was like up in the air all the time. Sure. Because there was that. So where I helped, apparently, so I I helped them and then in the sure, end, yeah. it actually worked. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, was I helped them to build a product strategy. Just, you know, set everybody down. It took a long time because you have to get onboarded and blah, blah. And then that product strategy led to the product managers making their own roadmaps that they presented to the leadership team. And, and now suddenly it went from this goal, that goal, retention, monetization, yeah. social, user acquisition. Now we need to boost our this number and that number to we know what we're going to do for the next two years. We're going to know what this is the roadmap for the six months. There's enough room. And then, and then people felt empowered and they're leading. And nothing really, like in my opinion, nothing really changed that much. We made some personal changes, but but not much. But nevertheless, when they worked on the strategy together, that was very concrete, on the product strategy, and then built their own roadmaps, people felt that this is a stable organization yeah. and and they were much happier working there. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that approach. And I think that's something that really resonates with what we do. Yeah. So when we talk before about the macro and the micro, yeah. I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make, you know, despite me saying mission and vision are really important, I absolutely believe they are. Mm. In isolation, they can become meaningless. So an analogy I often use with my teams and other companies that I've advised mm -hmm. is, let's say we decide that you know, you're a fit guy, we're gonna see if Misco can run the 100 meters under 11 seconds. Never gonna so, happen. <laughs> so if, you're, if we just say, look, we're gonna start this incredible mission, yeah. Misco and I, so we've got, a, we've got yeah. a mission, we've got a vision, and the vision is Misco's gonna run 100 Project meters under 11 seconds. Project, Project Icarus, you know, <laughs> let's do it, let's go. That's kind of meaningless. You know, this kind of ridiculous goal yeah. is meaningless. Yes. I mean, however many times yeah. I've stood up at a town hall and yeah. bang the table yeah. and say, Misco's gonna run the 100 meters under yeah. 11 seconds. Everyone in our team is kind of going, I don't think so. Yeah. Or how the hell are we going to get there? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You know, I don't understand this. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, very, if you think about that in a company sense, it's like, well, with this tiny company, there's these big companies that are making billions of dollars. How are we going to compete with them? Yeah. So I think the way that I, you know, the analogy I use to extend that idea of you running the 100 meters under 11 seconds is that what we would do is say, right, okay, we know, we know what we're trying to do. It's this incredible lofty goal. Let's think about how we're going to get you there. So let's think about what the training regime looks like. Let's mm -hmm. think about what the nutrition mm -hmm. looks like. Let's think strategy. about, yeah, the strategy. How are we gonna get you supple enough? How are we gonna get you fit enough? How are we gonna, and we'll start with these much more granular goals. So our, you know, our first six months might be just making sure yeah. that we can prevent any injuries. Yeah. It might be just getting you to a place where we think that we're confident you're not gonna injure. The next six months might be trying to get you to run it under mm. 14 seconds. You know, the next six months might be trying to get you under 30 seconds and doing all kinds of yeah. other training techniques. You know, I'm, I'm, I don't know much about sprinting, but you know, but you know what it's I mean? It's called you know, cycles and stuff. Exactly, exactly. You're, you're, break, smart. you're breaking this down into its constituent yeah. parts. And I think, you know, understanding what those individual goals are on the journey to that ultimate vision is mm. the only reason and the only way a vision and mission can make sense. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just this crazy objective goal that you might say to somebody down in the pub. Yeah. You know, it needs to be rooted in concrete actions and methodologies and metrics that you can test your performance along the way as you aim for that.
It's, um, I, I mean, so you're basically saying that mission and vision super important as a starting point, but without strategy and roadmaps, you're still dead. Completely right. yeah. yeah. So then you're still a random organization where everybody understands how to execute against mission and vision in different ways. Absolutely. I think you know anyone can say we want to build you know, great games that people, millions of people love to play yeah. every day for years. Yeah. Anyone can say that. Yeah. Very few people, people can actually, organizations can actually do that. And the devil is in the detail of yes. how you do that. And so I think you absolutely have to have those those DNA style statements, those constitutional yeah. statements about why you exist. But without the detailed strategy, they're for nothing. I think that's a very important point for people to understand because we tend to overstate the value of vision, the values of missions, uh, and understate the value of the work that just goes into Making the strategy, stra making a strategy is not like let's have an offside and come out with like <laughs> ten rules. <laughs> like, Absolutely, it's a it's a lot of alignment. It's just kind of boring at some point. You have to listen to everybody, then you make the decisions, and then you give ownership of the next stage and so forth. It's like it's a process. It is, and and it's, and it's grinding. Yeah, and it's you a grind. grind yeah. stuff out. And I think and I think that's a really important point for us to land here is that. These successes, you know, you talked about, you know, Playdemic not being an overnight success. Yeah. You know, of course it wasn't, you know, and I've seen very, very few overnight successes in our industry. Yeah. Most overnight successes take 20 years to yes. deliver, you know, and it's that those iterative learnings, those understandings of the, of the mission and the vision, and then the grindy steps of strategy to get there. And without that understanding, you know, you have to be able to, you have to be able to trace a direct thread from the mission and vision mm -hmm. all the way back to what I'm doing tomorrow. And I think the best strategies are able to do that. You know, if I can if I can understand what I'm doing tomorrow and how that's in service of ultimately the goal of this organization, then the organization's operating effectively in line with the strategy. That's beautiful. Okay, three things. More? So well I think my three things there were the yeah, big, the, the the big macros big with the with the people, yeah. the culture, and then the mission and vision and, and then in that yeah, grand the strategy. strategy. Of course. So I think the other thing, you know, getting into real micro stuff, yeah. I think the one thing that is so clearly evident to me now is that if you're trying to make mass market highly successful free to play mobile games, your understanding of the how competitively compulsive that product needs to be can't be understated. Mm -hmm. You have to genuinely believe and have objective tests that the thing that you're creating is going to compel people to want to complete that core loop thousands and thousands of times for years. And going back to what we said before about psychological safety, I mean, able to detach yourself from the subjectivity of an idea you've created mm -hmm. is so important. And again, this is something that's talked about a lot in our industry, you know, Supercell put this kind of up front and center in terms of the, you know, the test and kill philosophy. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies talk it. A lot of companies will say this is what they do. I find it very interesting that very few truly do. And there are some big impediments to it. Yeah. You know, the normal capitalist structure of an organization means it's quite a difficult thing to do. You know, if you're in a large organization, you know, you and I want to make a product, we'll maybe make a prototype that will win us some funding, we'll then have to commit to a P&L forecast, we'll have to commit that this is something that's going to come out at a point in time, and then suddenly that thing's got some inertia, and that, that momentum is very hard to stop. You know, once that thing's attracted capital deployment, once it's got a forecast, once it's, it's in someone's numbers, somebody, yeah. somewhere. Oh, inside a corporation. Inside a corporation, it's so difficult, it has to ship, you know. And that corporation may be stating publicly that they believe in this yeah. funnel analysis, this test and kill philosophy, but they don't because they can't. So I think you know, living that philosophy is crucially important. And that is about 
being truly impassive in your understanding of, of whether your product or not can entertain and be compelling to individuals. Mm. And for us, the way we think about it in Fourth Star is we have this thing we call the conveyor belt of doom. And it sounds very negative, but every, every single idea is strapped to the conveyor belt of doom. So it's destined to be chopped up by the jaws that are at the end of this conveyor belt. The only way you can drag an idea off the conveyor belt of doom is to objectively demonstrate that there's something seriously compelling about that concept. Because without the ability to do that, without the ability to prove that objectively, it's gonna be consigned to, bin, to the bin. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstructing first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. Okay, so there's an interesting topic here. So you have your strategy, you have your vision, you have your mission. Um, let's say you have your product strategy. Is your approach more like, let's get the MVPs out as soon as possible, test them, show the traction. If you don't show the traction, then the conveyor belt of doom is gonna eat it. Correct. So my question around this is, I've read the, uh, the Lean Startup, mm -hmm. and I think it's not a good book. I think it's a dangerous book. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, it, it um, prioritizes failing fast mm -hmm. over long-term success. And, things. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and over uh, strategic thinking, over being deliberate. And, yeah. and I'm trying to understand like how are you bringing the elements of de being deliberate? Because it's very easy to make a lot of prototypes mm -hmm. and kill them all. 
Uh, we've seen companies like Wuga is a good example. At one yeah. point, they went to this approach and they became very good at killing games. Sure. And very bad at shipping games. <laughs> <laughs> in the end, like we want to be on that shipping part. It, it's a really good point, and it's and there's a real nuance in that. And I'll yeah. tell you how we respond yes. to that. So there's a, there's a couple of things that we do as well, which I, again I should talk about for more context. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a concepting methodology, and we call it AIM. And A stands for audience, I stands for ingredients, and M stands for mix. And the idea behind AIM is to provide some kind of concept framework. So I think we all know that the great great creative ideas happen inside a, a framework, yes. happen with constraint. So the idea of AIM is to create some constraint. So, you know, we don't just get up in the morning and say, let's just make a game to somebody, you know? The idea of AIM, <laughs> yeah, the idea of AIM is to identify a core audience. And we have to yeah. believe that core audience is relatively underserved. Mm -hmm. not, that, not that there's any audience that's underserved in this market because there's so much competition, but we have to believe, relatively speaking, there is some audience opportunity there. So with Golf Clash, we felt that we felt this being proven to us by things like 8-Ball Pool and other products, that there was a competitive, casual male gamer who wanted to play skill-based PvP games that were relatively underserved. The fact that 8-Ball Pool had made it into the top 20 grossing yeah. showed us something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that was sort of the A uh, with that product. I is about ingredients. So for us, we, you and I talked before about the idea that there's lots of... There's lots of iterative steps in product development where people are copying things in the market, people are being inspired by things in the market, some are just playing Xerox and things yeah. in the market. Yeah. But for us, the right thing to do is to look at successful products and identify ingredients, elements of those games that are doing really, really well, but can be taken objectively out of that particular game loop and maybe used somewhere else. So we identify which ingredients we think resonate well with that audience. And that becomes part of our menu of things mm -hmm. we want to look at. And makes you look at the market much more. Yeah, exactly. And then and then M is is you know, M is there to make aim make aim, yeah. but M's really very exciting. <laughs> M's mix. So the yeah. idea is we're mixing these ingredients together into new forms. So I think it's important just to sort of give that context, that's our framework. And, and how do we test an MVP? Sorry, did I jump to No, 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 it's fine. I, I, no, you're, I just want to kind of you know, come back on your point there around, because yeah. I, I also agree with that nuance yeah. point, that you know, what I just described in the conveyor belt of doom yeah. may sound like move quickly to break things. Yeah. So, and that whole fail fast mentality. So there's a real nuance there for us. Um, and we've got an expression that we use at the office. We actually got a, we actually gra we love graphs, so we've got a graph for this. And we think there is a threshold by which you have to get to to assess the quality of your prototype. So what I mean by that is any idea that you're developing has to have a level of sophistication and polish and joy. It has to feel close to a prototype quality, so something you'd put in front of a, of a focus tester and be proud of mm -hmm. for you to get an objective feedback. So if you produce something just quickly that you, everyone in the studio recognizes, this is not really yeah, how we want it to be yet. We don't, when, in the real game, it won't look like this. In the real game, it won't feel like this. In the real game, that'll be quicker. Yeah. In the real game, you won't get that lag. In the real game, you won't get that effect on, you know, when you move between screens. That then, in our view, makes the whole prototyping phase pointless. Because yeah. what you're doing is putting something in front of somebody which is so far removed from the thing you're trying to get feedback on. And we know from experiences, as you do, is that to, that feedback is so marginal. You know, the difference between success and failure in this market is so marginal that you have to get that thing absolutely right. Yeah. So, for example, with Golf Clash, that pullback and release mechanic, that went through so many iterations, there's so much work done that to create that joyfulness. Mm -hmm. To the naked eye, to the untrained eye, that might just seem like a pretty simple thing mm -hmm. to do. 
But I think to the game maker, right, you know that those joyful, those toy-like things, yes. those things that are just pleasant to do, they take a lot of effort and work and iteration. So, so I think, you know, when we talk about the conveyor belt of doom, the things that are on there aren't just thrown on there. They're, they're made with joy and love and they're made at a high quality because we believe they have to be at that quality to get objective feedback. I think those are amazing points and that's why I kind of challenge, I don't know, I'm not challenging, I'm asking you know, you're right more to, yeah. questions because people hear these things over and over again and then they hear that one sentence from you or Ilka or somebody else and they go replicate and fail and they miss the nuance and like I'm asking more questions because you've done these things and you've been highly successful at doing these things so so the devil's in the detail it here it is like you are focused on one clear audience so that's already setting you there you have clear ingredients that you look at meaning you play other games you try to uh, you know put things together like any mobile, good mobile games and mix it up really bringing in not MVPs, but something that is testable, like deliberate development. Even though there's a lot of testing, there's innovation, there's room to figure things out, but in the end, it's a very deliberate process. Absolutely, and I think you, and I think that goes back to that idea we said earlier about trying to trace yeah. your strategy all the yes. way through. We spend a lot of time reminding everyone, as all as a team, why we're trying to do this. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, you'll know this, and I know you're about to do a Newsy podcast. There's, about 150 mobile game apps that are doing more than 100 million revenue a year according to data ai we have to be in that 150 yeah. so that 150 isn't new 150 no. every year as we know many of that 150 has been in there for a very long time so we're trying to break into that league we're trying to be we you know thankfully we've done it before so yes. we know it's achievable yeah. but we're trying to be in that top you know that top league of high performing products yeah. And we know to do that, we have to produce something that is so joyful and compelling to those people that they'll want to stop doing the thing they're currently doing and do something new. Like TikTok. Like TikTok. Yeah, which is actually <laughs> eating the world. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> Shout out to TikTok. <laughs> yes, indeed. We love TikTok. Um, so, so um, what are the, the other sort of micro, uh, I don't even think this is micro, this is like very deliberate product strategy sure. element that you have. It's not yeah. like, you know, we like to drink this. <laughs> we have our own energy drink. Uh, yeah. <laughs> our micro is like, we have great all hands. Yeah, we live on prime. <laughs> yeah. um, prime. So, um, yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff. You know, there's a lot of stuff yeah. to talk about. We, we, we're a great checklist company as yeah. well. We, we like checklists. You know, we like that as a method of keeping us true to that mission. You know, we like to break, you know, we, we talked a lot about how you, you take these big ideas and make them granular and make them, you know, you pull them into their sort of atomic parts. We find that actually creating checklists or success criteria, as we call them, is a really important part of that process. You know, to try and make sense, going back to you running yeah. 100 meters under 11 yeah. seconds, yeah. You know, when that turns into very small things that can be measured and done on a daily or weekly basis, that's a really important part of the process for us. So you know, that methodology, which is very deliberate and very unsexy, yeah. you know, trying to take a control method from something that, that you know, for this one of my lazy expression is 80% joyful to 92% joyful is is a somewhat dull, you know, grindy process. Um, and something that, you know, is very tempting to move away from and move on to the next thing. And I think, you know, what we've always tried to do and hopefully got better at and will be best at in this company yeah. is to stick with that and say, no, 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 we're not we're not moving on from here yeah. until we feel that we've got this as yeah. far as we can take it and then we'll move on. A lot of this that I'm that I'm hearing is is sort of very 
I want to say like professional but transparent approach to things. Yes. And I think that is what brings the psychological safety because there are rules. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that transparent I mean transparency, you know, is something that I've been a big fan of for a long time. Mm-hmm. So we are radically transparent. So we have been ever since we started Playdemic, you know, mm-hmm. Playdemic everyone in Playdemic knew the full PL. So we would do, I would do a town hall every week. We had weekly town halls. We actually had two town halls a week in Playdemic. We had one on a Monday and one on a Friday Um, because we believed in over-communication. And that transparency flowed through to the P&L. So there wasn't a person inside of Playdemic who didn't know the P&L. Now, not everyone might have actually taken a lot of notice, but but those who did, you know, had access to it and could see it. And for me, that's a really important part of this process. You know, in my experience, companies... Companies don't share their financials with their employees for two reasons. One, they're making too much money, they want to share it. Or two, they're not making enough and they're going to go out of business. Correct. So I think sharing the reality of of where we are with your highly talented, highly committed, highly aligned team makes absolute sense. Why would you hide part of the map from these people? So for for us, that you know, transparency permeates every part of what we do, mm-hmm. and it allows us to face up to the challenge. You know, the challenge which is so immense. You know, what we're trying to do is really difficult. So we don't want to do anything that makes it harder for ourselves. I mean, really open and honest about the scale of that challenge mm-hmm. and being transparent in how we're achieving against it is really yeah. important. That's a, that's so. I, I've often seen this transparency thing brought up. And I have, like, I understand perfectly your point. It makes all the sense. And then I go back to my examples of other founders that were quite, were transparent equally. And in a situation where the company's key game would fail, and they were showing decline, and they were kind of like, you know, seeing that the money is not going to be here forever. We put a lot of money into this, and it's not what it used to, what it was supposed to be. The company saw, a good amount of attrition and the problem with that attrition is is that the company was also going through some negotiation with key partners and as you well know like you can't ha- be having attrition during those negotiations yeah uh, because they are buying the people and, yeah. and so the problem also with those negotiations is that they're private they cannot tell the team so even though they are transparent they mm-hmm. actually are not because yes. they are not telling an important part of this equation um, so how do you how do you kind of tackle that, that yeah challenge? I think that's really important so I guess there's a couple of things in there I guess the first point before we get on to the, the acquisition and some, yeah. you know, NDA governed yeah. negotiations there's another part there which you, know, you talk about you know what happens when the financials are going the wrong way you know when the business is going south you know does that lead to attrition and you know, inevitably, in some cases, it does. You know, there's there's no hiding the fact that you know people enjoy being part of successful organizations. Yeah. And if that organization is ceasing to be successful, then obviously attrition might be a natural consequence of that. I think you know we none of us will pretend that's not true. Um, the one thing I would say though is if you're radically transparent about your performance, you'll see that early, and you'll be able to raise that challenge early. So you know, if you see that a product you know has peaked and it's coming down the other side. There is an opportunity as an organization to spot that early in its metrics, whether it be financial, whether it be you know, about engagement or retention or, or play session length or whatever it is, you can address that early and say, look, this is happening. This mm-hmm. is happening to us. You know, yeah. As a team, we're trying to win. And right now, it doesn't look like we're winning as much as we used to. What are we going to do about it? And you can respond together as, a, as an organization through that transparency. I think maybe some of the examples you're talking about is that where, when that information isn't flowing quite as readily, there might be transparency, but maybe things aren't being pointed out, identified early, 
then that information can come as a bit of a shock. You know, you sort of you go to the, mm. the quarterly town hall and you think things are going really well, and actually the CEO says, well, they're not. You know, they're really not. You know, we are 25% down where we were at this point last year. Oh, that must mean we're in trouble. Yeah. I think sugarcoating that information as well could also lead to negative outcomes. Yes. You know, this guy's telling me it's okay. It yeah. can't be okay. We're 25% down. That can't be it a good be a different story then. Yeah, he's trying to convince me to stay. He doesn't want me to think this is bad news. So I think, you know, you can't do this piecemeal approach transparency. You have to just be open. And if you know if your numbers are down, they're down. Let's talk about it. You know, the only the only organization that's gonna solve these numbers is us. You know, how are we gonna respond to that? So I think that's one thing I would say. I've definitely seen situations where we've been through adversity and actually transparency and over communication has held more people in than have left mm. and i think that's a really important point is that actually if someone respects you enough to be open and honest about the challenge then i think you have the ability to see it in the round i think there are lots of situations where keeping people out of that information or giving them a partial piece of that information is more likely to, to result in, in them leaving. Not every situation, yeah. but I think that's as a principle. As a I think point. that's a very good point. I think in terms of your, your second point of your of your question, which is what do you do when you're in a commercial negotiation that's sensitive and maybe given by NDA? So the way that I've handled that is I've, I've tried to see, we, I guess we're fortunate that our organization has been relatively small in terms of headcount. You know, if, you, if you're employing thousands and thousands of people, this becomes a lot more challenging. Or if you're a public company, this is a lot more challenging. But as a smaller private company, I've, I've strived as much as possible, working in partnership with companies that may be talking to us about acquisition, to share as much as possible with the group. Mm -hmm. So in a town hall meeting, if we're entering into an acquisition process, everyone will know that. Yeah. There won't be anyone in the studio who doesn't know we're having those kind of conversations. Yeah. They may not know the details that are commercially sensitive, of but they'll know it's happening. And you know, and my updates might well be, look, it's going really well, we're talking to five or 10 companies, yeah. you know, there's some of the companies you might expect us to be talking to, it's going well, or it's not going well, or we think we're not gonna do this now, or there'll be those kind of updates so that people feel like they're engaged in that process and they're part of that process. That's fascinating. Uh, I, I would lean towards the full transparency. I think I've, I've done in, in, in between, kind of like thinking, like that was always my question is like, like what is the downside and what is the upside? Yeah. And I've always like pushed more towards clarity over transparency because everything can be transparent, but I'll try to make everything as clear as possible. I think that's, I think those are really, really important points because they're good bedfellows yeah. as well. Transparency can lead to cognitive overload. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's definitely something that I've been guilty of, is you start sharing everything, and there are certain people in the organization who say, I didn't want to know that. Yeah. It's not my job to worry about that. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm not going to bed worrying about something that I wasn't worrying about before. Yeah. So I think you have, to be, you have to be careful as to how you deliver the information, and you have to deliver it in a manner that says, these are the things we should be worrying about, these are the things that we aren't worrying about, mm -hmm. these are things that we've got, You know, don't worry about them. And I think that that is a really important process, part of the process, and that clarity of communication is essential. I'll mean, I tell you one little anecdote that really brought transparency home to me was uh, in our Rockpool business, which was, yeah. I said before, was a work for hire business. Yeah. Um, we, were, we did a lot of work for Sega, a lot of work for THQ, we were making these games. And um, I'd often sort of go out and have dinner with people once we'd done a deal, and, and then sort of go, oh, you're gonna go making loads of money, aren't you? And I, and I started to realize, actually, they thought we were making more money than we were. 
So um, we, we, we moved our pricing model. So our, the way our pricing model worked internally, you know, and you sort of got measured the kind of guy I am, so it won't surprise you, is that it was very detailed. We had this model. Checklist. Yeah, and everything, every, every, every single hour was, we, we knew how much every single hour cost us, and we knew what the overhead contribution would be, what our profit contribution would be, and we'd sort of calculate all the numbers, and we'd work out, what, and we'd have a contingency for overruns, and it was never right, of course, but, you know, but we'd sort of, at least we had a very sort of mathematical approach. And so I suddenly realized, actually, this is what we should be sharing with our partners. So we went to a completely open book pricing model. So when we pitched on a, on a game, we would turn up and we'd say, this is how much it's going to cost us. This is exactly how, how many people, exactly how much they're going to cost, exactly what the overhead contribution is, and exactly what the profit is that we're going to make. And what was hilarious was that actually, it was, the profit was way less than they thought it was. Mm. So, um, and that was such an important thing for us because then suddenly it aligned us much more effectively yeah. with our with our partners, with the commissioning publisher. They knew we had to make a profit. If we didn't make a profit, you know, we wouldn't get through lean periods. Yeah. If we didn't make a profit, we wouldn't be able to grow. They knew yeah. we had to make a profit. And as soon as we were open and transparent about that, it added a new dimension to that relationship, a new level of trust that wasn't there before. Wow. Transparency goes all the way. I think so. I mean, it's, you know, there's no. no but what do you mean you think? You've successfully well, I guess done it. I I'm, 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 case I'm nervous of saying there's any singular solution yeah. to every single problem. Devil is in the detail. You can't do cognitive overload and you have to, you know, focus on things that are important for the team to understand so that everybody's on the same page. And I would assume in this type of a organization that people have to be quite senior, right? Yeah, well, I think, I think again, it's that one of the things that attracts me to these kind of businesses is that you know, you're working with a relatively small number of people, so communication can be very, very effective, because I know there's some, I can't remember the, the name of that, of the very famous psychologist who talks about where communication breaks down at a certain number of people. So yeah, 150. Something like that, isn't it, yeah. It's like a Dutch name. Maybe. Something like that, isn't it? Yeah, we'll, we'll look that one up. But, um, but I think that's definitely true. I think you know, communication breaks down exponentially yeah. over a certain number. So these, you know, these games businesses that we've set up tend to not get over about 100 people. Yeah. So communication is still very easy. So a lot of things I'm talking about are only possible inside these organizations. You haven't got very many levels of management, so it's, they're quite flat structures. Mm -hmm. As you say, they're senior, experienced people who understand what they're trying to do. So that makes this kind of a culture much easier to implement because of the nature of the people you're working with. Fascinating. What, what, what else are we missing? Or do we wow. go to the um, I, I don't, I'm gonna, not going to share all the secrets, right, right, right. Yeah, but, um, but I think, but I think you know that, that's probably a good summary yeah, of kind of it's, how we it's approach it. More than good, and and I think that's you know I suppose the only the only we haven't really touched on, and I know when you were prepping me for this, you were talking about you know how competitive the market is, why now? Yeah, well, I want to ask something that that you've kind of gotten rid of of the tendencies or or some of the elements over these four companies now. Like what were the things that you thought would work and then you had to drop it? Yes, well I think, well I mean you mentioned Gang Nations earlier. Yes. And Gang Nations was a project that really should have died. Um, and that was a really good learning experience for us. That was us absolutely not living the test and kill methodology. Mm -hmm. We became very emotionally attached to that product. Um, and we persisted with it. We thought we could polish our way into better metrics. You know, all the mistakes that you know we know about that was a really important learning experience for us. So I think that, that lesson from a product perspective was a really good one. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we probably touched a little bit on the hiring. You know, hiring, you know, again, I'm conscious that some of these expressions sound a little bit jargonistic, but hiring, if you believe that people are your greatest asset, then hiring is your most important function. 
So, so trying to really invest in hiring and seeing hiring as a, as a crucial function for success is really important. And again, that's something people will say, mm. but actually doing it is quite difficult because if you're in service of making product, if you're in service of the strategy, hiring can often feel like an annoyance. It can often feel like this thing that you sort of have to do because you're, you're resource constrained, yeah. you need to get some people through the door. Um, so really focusing down on the hiring process. So you know, we've done a, we did a thing at Playdemic, which we still do now, at Fourthstar, which is that we have a very involved hiring process. So it's a multi-stage process. Mm -hmm. The final stage of that process is we ask everybody who's gonna come to work for us when they're a candidate to come and work for us for three days. Nice. So they come work for us for free, and they come work inside the team they're gonna work. Three for days work. work for free. Three days work for free. Now, that I actually Why? discovered, why, why for free? Yeah. Because I think it really represents a really important commitment from that individual. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're asking somebody to commit to something, I think they have to risk something. So if somebody comes and they say, I'm prepared to give you two or three days of my holiday, or they might call them sick, I don't know. But you know, oh, well. <laughs> they're, they're, they're gonna give you two, three days of their holiday, yeah. their vacation time. Yeah, they're really yeah. committing to this process. And what we say to people in this, in this hiring funnel is look, this is as much for you as mm -hmm. it is for us because you may be an incredibly exceptional individual, you may be super talented yeah. and have all experience, but going back to what we said earlier, if you don't have the chemistry yes. with the team you're about to go into, this thing's not gonna yes. work. So you need to come and be in that team. And I think the reason I'm saying two or three days is because a lot of people, when they come to an organization for the first time, it's very difficult to really, to let your guard down and be the real you. Mm -hmm. I think two or three days in, you're kind of getting to the real you. Interesting. So you can be an authentic version of yourself. You can see the authentic version of the people around you mm -hmm. and both the organization and the individual can make a decision as to whether that is a good Exactly, fit. it's a mutual evaluation. I, I like that a lot. It just brought me back to my discussion of, on the podcast. Of, we had Jordan Mazur, who worked at Scopely, Riot, and now at A16Z as yeah. their head of talent. And I, I was like adamant at, on testing everybody. Test everybody, yeah. it doesn't matter. If somebody doesn't want to test, then they don't want the job. Agreed. And the test is about four to eight hours. And he was very much like, no, 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 mm -hmm. no, because you lose that candidate and they will get another job. And that might be an American approach. I don't know, this is UK, so that might be different. Well, I understand, and again, I think there's a nuanced point in there. Yeah. I think there are two ways of doing that. So I think some of those, some of those barriers, some of those tests feel like barriers. You know, mm -hmm. they feel like an obstacle. Mm. And I think part of part of getting this right yeah. is it's a bit like we were talking about before about creating psychological yeah. safety. You know, you can have a supportive and warm culture that's yes. high performance. Yeah. And I think this is similar to the hiring process. As you take somebody to that point where they're ready to do, a, you know, a coding test or an art test mm -hmm. or whatever it is. If, if it's with one of our businesses, you've already had several meetings. Mm -hmm. You're already both pretty invested in that process. And hopefully, both parties recognize the value of that test. Yes. You know, the candidate doesn't want to go into an environment where their skills may be misunderstood. The organization doesn't want to hire a candidate without truly understanding their skills because you know, we talk about this a lot. Mm -hmm. Interviews are actually a really poor measure of game oh. development ability. So you might be really good at interviews, but you might suck at coding. So we need to get you into that yeah. point where both parties understand. And then beyond that, we then need to do the chemistry test, the cultural fit test, which is that coming in and spending time with the organization. So I think you know there are you know you're both right. Yeah. They can be really off-putting if they're delivered in the wrong way too yeah. early in the process. Exactly. If they're like gay. So in our case, it was more like the person joins our Slack channel, so yeah. they're interacting with the manager and so forth. So it's not on site. Yes. Uh, but it is like you're working from home. Yeah. And so at least you're getting 
you know, if it's on a directory, you're getting hard feedback and you're modifying and you're having communication and so forth. So. Sure. And the style and manner of that communication yeah. is also important, isn't exactly. it? If, if that is very kind of, if the power balance is off, yeah. you know, if it's kind of, you know, talking down to the individual, then I think you can, you know, alienate people pretty quickly that way. All right. Emotionally attached to projects, check. Hiring most is the most important function, check. What else? Well, I, you know, what else? What else? <laughs> well, I think we covered a lot. You know, we've covered. Yeah, we've yeah, covered a the, lot. The macro, we covered some of the micros, yeah. sort of the aim. All, all the things. Just, yeah. All the things that are working is because something didn't work and you perfected them. So, yeah. so let's move on to the last thing about how you work, and this is very interesting. Four days work week. I, I read this from somewhere, and let me preface this with a story. So, <laughs> um, I was in. A, I was at uh, a Unity event in Israel. And um, a couple of years ago, we're sitting in, in the bus, and the bus is full of executives. It's like this event called AppFest, really fun one. Yeah. And everybody's from everywhere. And it's going, and then I'm listening to the, uh, the, this, this conversation. Remember, an Indian executive and an American one. And the Indian, looks at the, this sounds like a joke. Right? <laughs> uh, the Indian talks to the American, like, have you heard what they're doing in Europe? He's like, no, what's up? I was like, four day work week. And then he laughed and he said, we're going to work six days a week. And then they were just laughing how lazy Europeans are. Fourth star is doing four day work week. And without any pre prejudice, I'm just always remembering this conversation. Yeah, I'm yeah. remembering the Pocket Gamer. It was a games industry biz article where one studio, I think in Romania, tried the four day work week and they came up with uh, with revelation that it's 20% slower. Yeah. On the dot. Why are you doing four days work week? It's a really good question, and I, and I do recognize both those critiques. You're trying four days. We're work trying. Week. We're experimenting. Yeah. So, so I think you know, one of the things that we do, you know, we, we didn't touch on this earlier, but one of the things we do is, you know, when we think about how we behave mm -hmm. in full star, we we actually have some very clear behaviors. Again, that sort of DNA of the organization that's written down, and we all kind of we all understand that we all know what we're signing up for. One of the things that we've always been very focused on in all our companies actually, but you know, very much in Playdemic and now very much in Full Star, is that we measure productivity by output, not input. So it's very easy to waste a lot of time in organizations. You know, you can, I can sit in front of my PC from seven in the morning till 10 at night, five right. days a week and do very little. Yes. And what's so we know scientifically measuring the time that I'm in front of the PC is not a great measure of, of output. It's not a great measure of productivity mm -hmm. and it's certainly not a great measure of creativity or innovation. So what we're most interested in is what people are actually outputting, what their productivity is, how innovative they are, how creative they are. So what we're certainly interested in doing is experimenting in the best way to create that, to create, going back to what we said before about creating the best environment for people to do incredible things. So, so I should say at the outset, the way that we have communicated this experiment inside of Full Star is that we believe that we will be more productive, and productive here is a nuanced word, it means, it doesn't just mean quantity of output, it also means the quality of output. So we believe we'll be more qualitatively productive in four days than we will in five. Mm. That's the thesis that we're trying to examine. The logic behind that is that we know that being highly creative and innovative at this edge of high performance requires high degrees of focus, it requires high degrees of energy, it requires high degrees of collaboration, and that's pretty exhausting. So what we're thinking is that actually, if you do that aggressively for four days and then have three days out, that might be might be a better way of doing it 
than doing five days and two days out. Now there seems to be some evidence suggests that it might be, some evidence suggests that it might not be. So we we have our metric of failure, and it's recently made this point, and I stood up in a town hall meeting just the beginning of last week, and I said our metric of failure here is 80% output. If we're doing 80% productivity, then this whole experiment is complete failure. Because doing what we're trying to do here is so difficult, it's so competitive, that if we're removing 20%, to your, to your anecdote from the bus, if we're removing 20% of our ability, yeah. then we're definitely gonna fail. Yeah. So this is an experiment in saying, we don't really care about the days or the hours. What we care about is what we're actually creating. Now, I think, as you've heard from me already, we're very focused and clear about what it is we're trying to do. Can we do it better in four days with a high degree of focus, a high degree of energy, high degree of collaboration than we can in five? I don't know the answer yet. I really don't. And I think you know we're, we're all going into it in that spirit of transparency to say, we've got to be on our guard to make sure this isn't 80%. Because if it is, we're going to fail. I think that's uh, that's very very interesting way you're putting it because it's not a trick to get people hired, especially no. since you have to try for three days. Yes, three. yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like you're lowering the bar. It's like just work four days and you can be here. <laughs> but yes. it is a way to to find the optimal output. And just like I mean, we use too many sports analogies, but sports is true. You can overtrain. You can overtrain. And you can be you know less productive that way. And we've been in. in uh, in companies where, where a lot of time goes to meetings and stuff like that. So this probably is when you limit the time, you make people focus on the most important things, and through that, they won't waste and think there's, you know, well, I'll do this on Friday. That, that's the positive view of it, certainly. And that's, we did a little Q&A in this town hall meeting I did on Monday, last Monday, and one of our team said just that. He said, look, when I, yeah, actually, I'll be honest with you, Paul, when I come to the office, you know, historically, because they're all ex-pandemic people, mm -hmm the first half an hour or so of the day, I'm getting a coffee and having a chat and just logging in and yeah. just sort of get my brain warmed up. Yeah. He said, I now know I can't do that. So I just hit the ground running. And I thought, hmm, okay, that's really interesting because that's, that's what we're hoping to achieve here. Um, it's too early to say whether it's successful, but I think you're absolutely right. If you can create the notion that you have an extra day in a week to do all the things that get in the way of work in a five-day week, please use that extra day to do all those things. Mm -hmm. Don't do them as well as yeah. the four days. Yes. You know, stay very laser focused. Yeah. This new constraint, you know, let's use it to do something incredible. Yeah. Let's see if it works. Yeah, no no deliveries, <laughs> no, yeah. no bullshit like yeah. that. If you've got appointments, see a yeah. doctor or yeah. a dentist, do it. They're on the fifth day. Yeah. I, should, I should say we're very prescriptive. So Friday is the day that people yeah. are at work. So we don't allow people to choose their yeah. four days. It's, it's Monday to Thursday. Exactly. Yeah, so, um, because it's teamwork. And that leads me to the question of remote work. How are you about that? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, there's one point I guess I'll make okay. that re reflects on both these points mm -hmm. is that I think this approach, this, the if you are a supporter of this four-day week thesis, then it works in particular scenarios. So for example, right now, what Fourth Star is trying to do is loads of creative, innovative, collaborative, mm -hmm. iterative work that involves people coming together, trying to get to this quality bar to test it, to see if we can get it off the conveyor belt of doom. Once you're in a successful globally launched service-based product, then clearly people not working on a Friday suddenly becomes a really bad idea. Mm -hmm. you know, our players don't not play on a Friday and we really don't want to encourage them not to. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's this model is suited to certain types of work. And I would, you know, and that's why it's something that's like all of our 
all of our processes and methodologies at Fourth Star, it's under constant review. You know, anyone is open to challenge it, as we all do at all times. Mm. Um, but when it comes to hybrid work, it's a similar approach. I'm a great believer that when you're doing highly creative, innovative work with a team, being physically located is really important. I've not seen any evidence to convince me mm. that being remotely located in those that type of work is better. Um, it may be just as good, some people would argue, but my experience is it's worse. Yes. That actually it has a negative impact on creativity, on collaboration, on speed, on communication. So my view is, is a strong one, I know Alex shares this as well, that being co-located in a physical space together is the best way to get that to work. However, we also acknowledge that some work is better done in private. Mm -hmm. There are pieces of work where you just have to get your head down, you know what you're doing, you need some quiet, you need to do that. We've tried to create offices that allow that to happen. Yeah. Right now in Full Star, we don't have an office yeah. that allows you to do that. We're in one big room. Yeah. And actually that work where you've done the collaboration, you've done the brainstorming, you've got a mission, you you know, yeah. Miss knows exactly what he's doing for the next four hours. That often is better done somewhere quiet or somewhere you've got. And I think that's the benefit I think we get from hybrid. The the pandemic, you know, I was, you know, it's funny when we were, when we went into the pandemic, I was in charge of Playdemic, but also of TT Games as well, which was the, the much, much larger studio that makes all the Lego games. Mm. And we were, we were thinking about how we would work remotely and we had meetings. You know, we had at that point, I guess it was like maybe 600 people across both those organizations. And we had lots of meetings where we would honestly say to each other, this just can't work. We yeah. just can't do this. Yeah. You know, we've never done this, this can't work. And we actually used Playdemic as a test case. We said, look, let's try and send Playdemic home for a week, just one week, you know, to see if the company just falls off a cliff. <laughs> um, and obviously, thankfully, it didn't. But what was interesting is that week happened to coincide with the start of the, the lockdowns in the UK. So mm -hmm. Playdemic went home for a week and didn't come back for two and a half years, uh, which was hilarious. And obviously, the TT went home as well. But I think what we learned through that journey was that actually, whilst it's not it's far from ideal for many of the things that we want to do video games. There are certain things that it does work for, yeah. or rather there are certain things you can continue to do of from home. And they tend to be those singular tasks where you know exactly what you're doing, you need focus, you don't want the cognitive overload of people chatting around you. Asynchronous work. You. Correct. So I, think, you know, so I think there is, that's one approach to hybrid work. I think, you know, and this is being completely honest with you, I think it's hard for us to hire now without suggesting that we will work to some extent in a hybrid way. We've not yet got to the point where we're mandating you have to be in the office all mm. the time. We might get there, yeah. but we're not there today. I think Bandai, if I'm correct, Bandai Namco in Barcelona, they have a four day work week. Yeah. They've been on a podcast, they're talking about it. And I believe it's four day at the office. Okay. That's and then the fifth day, go motorcycle, yeah. drink sangria. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'd and they like, are in the I'd, same phase. Yeah, I'd love games. to talk about that because I think I suspect we might net out yeah. there as well because yeah. I think that those two things feel like good bedfellows. Yeah. If you're going for that strong, focused, collaborative work, it tends to be done better in one space. If you try and do that in four days rather than five, it ups the need to be in the yeah. same space. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, the second part where you can be at home, that you should be at home and concentrating. If that's the first thing you like, you take a day to do a concept or something. It's like wake up. Yeah. Get your kids out and just do it. Like, don't even spend time commuting. 100%. And I think you can waste a lot of time commuting. Yeah. What, what we're trying to do, we're actually just in the process of fitting out a new, a new studio yeah. space. And one thing we're trying to do in that new studio space is actually create 
a different space for that piece of work. Mm. So we've actually called an area the library, and the, the library area of the studio is designed for that type of work, that really quiet, focused work. You can't even take your phone in. You can't even take your phone in. Not really? Yeah. I'm going to go in there. That's so smart. Because I think, you know, the best scenario is where you can work in different ways yes. in the same physical space. I always wanted to have meetings where you have to leave the phone out. Yeah, do you like, know, I, I'm a big fan of that. I mean, yeah. really, I think that, you know, phones, obviously, the, the, yeah. Yeah, we love them. Of course. But the impact, the impact of just holding yeah. a phone. You know, if I was holding my phone down talking to you, yeah. it would show I'm not connected, right. I'm not as interested in Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. You're people, perfectly fine when I'm People are listening to this don't know that you're writing and, and, and I'm looking at the phone. Oh, yeah. I'm just drawing. <laughs> you're drawing doodles yeah. as I call you. Super bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but, but that's, that's true. And even though I have all the questions on the phone, I have to actually rewrite them here. and. But it, it creates a better conversation. I think it's uh, it's the same with, thing with meetings. And I'm addicted to my phone. Yes, you and me both. And <laughs> so, you have to. You know, so it's not like I'm better. It's like no, no, no this is <laughs> if if it's in my pocket, I can't do it. But we connect so much yeah. better because neither of us have a phone. Exactly. And I think that's exactly. really that is a really important thing. So Paul, why are you going to succeed? Well, I think we're going to succeed for the fourth, for the fourth time. Yeah. I think we're going to succeed because I think fourth and a, four and a half. Four and a half. Four, yeah, like, we've done a few know, other things. Pandemic is yeah, like a double. True. Double. It is. <laughs> and we've done a few other investments yeah. along the way. But I think, you know, the way I like to think about it is that I love making games. I love making free-to-play mobile games. I know Alex does too. One of the reasons that we do is that as a game maker, I think you're really excited about getting your product into as many hands as possible. Mm -hmm. And mobile to me still represents that opportunity. And one of the things I love about Golf Clash is that I meet people all the time that have played it. Yeah. I used to talk a lot, you know, we're very metrics obsessed at, um, at, at Playdemic and we, and we are at Full Star. In fact, we haven't talked about AI. We've got a really incredible head of AI yeah. at uh, Full Star. And we were using a lot of AI actually at oh, Playdemic. So interesting. For the next podcast. <laughs> but, um, but, but one of the things I used to love, and anyone who's, who's used to talk to who used to work at Playdemic will, will tell you, I used to bore people with the amount of hours of entertainment that we created. I love this idea that we created thousands and thousands of years of entertainment with people because that's, that makes me feel good. I think it makes other people feel good. Mobile represents an incredible opportunity to do that. You know, thanks to Apple and Google, and the user acquisition infrastructure, which is not what it used to be, mm. we have this ability to make a product, you know, in Manchester in the UK and sell it on a global scale and understand people on a global scale, distribute it globally. Very few industries have that. Yeah. When you look at the scale of that opportunity, you know, it's like 1.67 billion people played a mobile game last year. You know, there's 107 billion just in, in you know, payments going through the app stores, you know, a lot more now going around the app stores, mm -hmm. and crowd amount of advertising that's going on mobile. Very few industries have those metrics. So I think there's something incredibly exciting about being able to do that. We've said how hard it is and that the, the proceeds of that success are very unevenly delivered. You know, I think by my calculation, the top 20 is about 17% of the whole market. The top 150 might be as much as 60% of the whole market. You know, it's an incredible, incredibly concentrated uh, distribution of success. However, we know we've done it before. I think we have a set of experiences and skills and motivations and approaches that narrow the odds for us it doesn't guarantee success we all know in this industry there is if i sat here and told you i'm definitely gonna be success yeah. then i think i'll be winning a golden twig next year. <laughs> um, but um but i think certainly i think we are reducing our odds of of you know of being successful i think we've got a better set of odds than a lot of other companies and I'd like to think that our commitment to 
product quality, our commitment to engagement mm -hmm. and retention, um, and the meta structures that allow long-term player monetization will mean that we will not bring something to market that isn't going to be successful. So if we fail, yeah. it will be that we never brought game to market. Yeah. We will not bring something to market that we aren't convinced objectively is going to be successful. Now you never know 100%, but I think you know our filters and our experience are good enough that whatever it is we bring to market has a reasonable chance of being successful. I have one last question. Yes. So, were you ever afraid of failing? Every single day. You're still afraid oh, of failing? Oh, petrified. Really? Yeah, I remember, I remember reading... Because you don't, you don't come, like, you don't... Oh, you don't underneath this, like this calm like, demeanor is a oh, petrified child. very English. <laughs> <laughs> um, Calculated and smart. <laughs> but you know what, I think that's... I remember reading a business book once, um, and it was it was a I can't remember his name now. He was a publisher, Matt Felix mm -hmm. Dennis. He was called. Mm -hmm. He was a publisher of uh, lots of magazines and and, and uh, different publications in the UK. Very successful guy, and he said, "Show me an entrepreneur without demons, and I'll show you an unsuccessful entrepreneur." <laughs> <laughs> and I think that always resonated with me. I think I think many people who try to do difficult things are largely driven from a fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, that's always been true of me. The thought of failing makes me work harder, mm -hmm. makes me try harder, hopefully makes me more innovative, yeah. hopefully makes me think the best way that I can. Um, so yeah, 100% petrified. But, but do you have like a chip on your shoulder? Like why? Oh, like, probably, yeah. yeah I'm like, sure I have. Like, who are you proving? Well, do you know the funny <laughs> thing is, proving you, wrong? Off, off, <laughs> off the record, you and many other people have said uh, to me, why are you doing this? Yes. You know, well, it's a legitimate you, question. Yeah, you're, you're, now you're in your late 40s, you've got yeah. plenty of money, you've got family. You've you're got, in your late 40s? I am, 47. Wow. So, I would have said you're... 37. Oh, you're an old charmer. No, no I'm, I'm <laughs> like, like people don't understand through camera. I'm, I'm listening well, that's close. Very kind no of wrinkles. You. That's very kind of you. <laughs> uh, I spent all my money on Botox. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> There's no gray hair. There like, is actually. I have more. Oh, if you look carefully, you'll find the gray. But, um, but yeah, no, I think, I think that's that fear of failure that drives people. Yeah. You know, it, there's no, there's no logical reason. You know, it's, I'm not doing it for. You know, commercial accolades yeah. or, or money, or <coughs> I just feel that real drive to do it. I'm sure, part of that is you know the fear of, of not doing it. Yeah, that that chip on the shoulder. I'm I'm just I'm not going to mention the uh, the name of the CEO of one of the most successful <laughs> companies, and and I heard down the grapevine, I was like the same channel. I was like, so why is he still doing this? Like, like Paul, you're successful. He's he's crazy successful. Yeah, <laughs> it will make you know. You look like me compared to you. <laughs> so, um, and he's like, no, he's 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 really into it. Like he's 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 he wants to prove it. He wants to do it. And, and people close to him, are like, yeah, yeah, he's he's down. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, yeah. that's crazy. Like, definitely doesn't have to do it. No, and I think but I think that's a really interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's that. I mean, a lot of successful entrepreneurs aren't yeah. well adjusted, sort of you know, rational people. Yeah. You know. They are driven by a certain <laughs> thing, and I think it's like, you know, I know we talk about sport, but you know, people say, oh, I want to be yeah. a footballer because you'll earn loads of money. Yeah. No person ever became a successful footballer because they wanted to earn loads of money. You know, they became a successful footballer because yeah. they, were, they were talented, yeah. they were driven, they were like passionate the about the game. That's why they're successful. It happens yeah. to be that you earn a lot of money. Yeah. That's a byproduct, and I think that's true of lots of entrepreneurs. That's, that's why they keep lots. playing until their wheels fall off. Exactly. Like they could stop yeah. and have their bodies, but yeah. they still keep playing yeah. until somebody says enough. Like yeah. we're not gonna 
we're going to take you on the team. It's like, well, I'll go to Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that's the deal you and I should have. Yeah. But I'm here with company six yeah. and I'm kind of hobbling in. You yeah. say, enough now, Paul. Nobody yeah. find this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to find it myself. You're going to pay him to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, thank you, Paul, for fantastic. Was this an interview? It feels like a chat. It feels like a chat. It was lovely. And I, look, I'm so honored to yeah. do this as well. Because as you know, I'm a big fan of you, the <laughs> Destructor of Fun. I'm a very loyal twig. It is. I think I'm 265. I think yeah. I've still got 266. It's, it's, so. it's mind boggling every time to see real people who listen to the podcast. We love it. Uh, and especially people as successful as you listen to the nonsense that we spew out every week. I'm a big fan. Uh, <laughs> big fan of the nonsense. So thank you so much. Truly, um, one of the best interviews. Love, love that. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Fourth star, link in the description. If you want to work for three days for free, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> if, you want, if you want to join, uh, um, I would say uh, uh, one of the most interesting startups out of Europe, for sure. Work with Paul, learn yeah. how to build organizations, get on the uh, the conveyor belt of oh, death, of death, doom, doom. <laughs> and try your luck with AI. This is the organization for you. So, brilliant. Thank you for that, Mr. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.